There's a famous aphorism in the Hunzi, which is a third century BC philosophical tract, which is the king is a boat. The people are the water. The water can hold up the boat or it can sink the boat. The people wow. can sink yeah. the king. So that's a statement about participation. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. For the last episode, I did the foolhardy thing of talking about Italian politics a few days before everything inevitably changed. So now I'll do the foolhardy thing of talking about British politics before everything inevitably changes. But forget about the minutiae of the fights going on at the moment, important for they are. I think what's interesting from the perspective of populism and the fight against it is to step back a little bit and understand the basic political clash that's going on at the moment as one that's representative of what populists do to political systems everywhere. It is a clash between parliamentary sovereignty, between the legitimacy of representative democratic institutions, and popular sovereignty. The importance of the will of the people as interpreted by its supposed spokesman. So Britain for a very long time has had the doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty. The idea that it is parliament, the elected representatives of the people who interpret what people want and try and come up with the best solutions and pass the laws. Because the referendum in 2016 created two options, one of which gave a clear mandate for what would happen next, namely to remain in the European Union, and another to leave, which didn't create a very clear mandate because there's all kinds of ways of leaving the European Union, from essentially staying in the single market, remaining bound by European regulations, having a very tight relationship with Europe, to crashing out without any deal at all. Any set of politicians can now claim to speak for the people. And that is exactly what has happened. Over the last two years, the hardest Brexiteers, the most Eurosceptic forces, have kept saying, you know what, anything that Labour puts forward, anything that Theresa May puts forward, is a sellout. They are betraying the will of the people. They are enemies of the people, as newspapers have titled at some point. What you need is me, the populist, fighting for the true will of the people. The first person who incarnated that was Nigel Farage, who managed to rise very quickly with his Brexit party as a result. And now that baton seems to have passed to Boris Johnson. In a very telling historic poster, the Conservative Party has branded itself the People's Party. It is the People's Party because supposedly it alone is able to speak for and interpret the views of ordinary Britons. And because it alone is a legitimate spokesman of the British people, it even justifies proroguing, suspending the British Parliament. I don't think British democracy is about to die. I don't think that we're witnessing in Britain what we're seeing in Hungary, what we might even be seeing in a place like India or Brazil. But it is nevertheless quite astounding how quickly that populist energy has managed to find a place for itself in the British political system. We have now seen the transformation of the most historically influential political party in the country into a populist party. And we have seen somebody for the first time since Charles I suspend Parliament stop it from operating precisely because they knew that it would go against the will of the person currently holding power, in this case Boris Johnson. And we will see that basic mechanism, the clash between popular sovereignty and parliamentary sovereignty, playing out in lots of different countries in all kinds of different ways over the next years as well. So this is something that I think we can take away from the minutiae of a debate over Brexit, whether or not there'll be a new election, whether or not we will end up with no deal.
Well, it's a real pleasure to introduce this conversation with James Robinson. James is a university professor at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. He has for a long time been working together with Daron Atsumoglu. They had a very influential bestseller called Why Nations Fail that was published earlier this decade. And now they have a new book, which is no less ambitious and no less insightful called The Narrow Corridor, States, Societies and the Fate of Liberty. We talked about everything from the importance of political institutions, attempts to understand why some countries are very prosperous and others are poor, the importance of a healthy state that is checked by a healthy civil society in order to allow for human liberty and how difficult it is to get to that narrow corridor. This is a conversation that will really help you to understand a tremendous amount about why some countries are free and prosperous and others are struggling in the world today. I'm really excited for you to listen to our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I think the right way to start understanding, you know, your incredibly extensive work, which really is incredibly ambitious in the scope of things that it tries to explain, is to understand why it is that both in One Nations Fail, the sort of big international bestseller, and in the new book you have coming out, The Narrow Corridor, you focus crucially on institutions. Why is it that institutions in your mind are the key to understanding economic prosperity or human liberty? And why have we failed to adequately see this so far? You know, when I was a student in economics and I learned the theory of economic growth or I learned microeconomic theory, and I tried to apply that to understanding all the variation that you see in the world, I just felt it doesn't contain what's necessary to understand the variation. You know, this this notion that you have factor endowments or technology or preferences, or I don't think that helps you understand what goes on. You know, just, for example, physical factor endowments, land or capital or labor, you can't understand the consequences of that for economic development or even politics unless you understand property rights and who has access to land and on what conditions and how can it be transferred. So, you know, you go to Africa, you know, you have some notion of what markets and factor markets are supposed to look like, and you realize that they don't look like that at all, that the way they're organized is completely different. And that has all sorts of consequences for economics and politics. So I'm sort of happy with these notions of incentives and, you know, that economists have, but incentives function within this kind of web of rules that, you know, create very different structures that influence people hugely. So I don't know, it's always seemed obvious to, to me <laughs> that economics never really contained, you know, mainstream economics doesn't contain what you need to explain all this variation in the world. And I was very influenced when I was an undergraduate by reading North and Thomas's book, The Rise of the Western World, which is an institutional theory of the Industrial Revolution. And a lot of our early work was in some sense trying to take those ideas and operationalize them kind of mathematically and empirically. And, you know, why did we start with all this work on politics? Well, North and Thomas's book is all about politics. It's all about how political revolutions and political change created the institutional structures that allowed the Industrial Revolution to happen. So to give a very, very crude summary of a very subtle book, my understanding of a core tenets of why nations fail is that, yes, of course, incentives matter, that people are able to gain prosperity, to produce a lot of goods in exchange for them in virtually any circumstances economically, that you don't have to have the right climate, you don't have to have uh, the right raw material, you don't have to have one culture or, or another culture. But what you do have to have is a set of political institutions that actually make it worthwhile to invest in things, that make it worthwhile to work hard. And a lot of the time, because of extractive institutions, that's not the case. Now, at first glance, somebody who hasn't read your work might think that only pushes the level of explanation one level back. Because after all, how is it that institutions manage to create those right kinds of incentives? So what role does history play in helping to explain why some societies have been able to build those inclusive institutions that provide the right incentives and others have miserably failed at it. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think you're right that, you know, exactly the right way to think about it is in terms of these layers, you know, that when you're talking about the economics, it's kind of economic institutions that are important, you know, property rights and things like that. But, you know, in our view, that's an outcome of a political process. The choosing economic institutions emerges out of a political process. So then you need to understand the types of political institutions that create different sorts of economic institutions. So then where do these different political institutions come from? And actually, I think in Why Nations Fail, we didn't do such a great job of explaining that. And really, that's what the new book, The Narrow Corridor, is about. It's trying to study where on earth did this divergence in political institutions with massive economic and political and social consequences come from. I think we take a few kind of bites at the cherry in Why Nations Fail. You know, a lot of our research has been on the colonial world, for example, trying to look at sources of variation in political institutions and economic institutions within the colonial world and how come some parts of the colonial world, like North America, ended up doing a lot better than other parts like South America. But you, know, you could say that's a very specific historical epoch. So I think, you know, my view is that it's human creativity and innovation that creates differences. And human creativity and innovation is not closely tied to climate or ecology or culture. But understanding that pattern in the past is, it's, you know, it's deeply path dependent and innovations happen and people come up with new ideas and new ways of solving things and you know, new ways of thinking about the world. And innovation and political philosophy, which is one of your things, I think that's very important, you know, just coming up with different ways of thinking about society and people's roles in it and how you organize it and what's legitimate. And those innovations take off or they spread or they don't or they backfire. You have to look back in history and think about innovation in human society and how that accumulated in some part of the world and how it spread to other parts of the world. And so the new book is really trying to think about that, providing a simple framework for thinking about innovation, historical innovation, and the path-dependent consequences of that. So exactly as you said, that's a very historical thing, and you have to think about these innovations, and it's not something deeply tied to structural factors. So this is one question I had as I was reading Why Nations Fail, which is that you emphasize, in my mind rightly, the importance of these historical junctures. So those moments when societies can start going in one direction rather than another, often because of factors that look reasonably minor at the time. One particularly important one you outline is the Black Death and the past in Europe, which obviously is a huge historical event, but it just has subtly different impacts on the labor supply in places like the United Kingdom on the one hand, and in places like Central and Eastern Europe on the other hand. And that uh, sets those two sets of societies up for more inclusive or extractive institutions. I was wondering at the time, to what extent ideas can play a crucial determinative role in those historical junctures? To what extent is this a determined response where it's just the labor supply is affected slightly differently in one country rather than another because the Black Death is just a little bit uh, more devastating in one place or another for whatever biological reason? Or is it also that societies become discombobulated, whatever relative equilibrium they had before is knocked off because of this external shock like a huge epidemic. And there's some degree of contingency in how a set of actors at that particular moment decide to respond to it. I think that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the problems that Daron and I have is that we're too materialistic. You know, we've been saying for years, you know, we grew up in this tradition of economics, you know, and kind of crypto Marxism, which ironically, a lot of economics kind of imbibed and it's this very, this very materialistic way of thinking about the world. But I think you're absolutely right. I think that you know economists have no problem thinking about technological innovation. So why not think about intellectual innovation? So I think that's exactly right. It's just very difficult to have a framework for kind of disciplining that in the way that we're used to. You're socialized into a particular way of thinking about how you do things. And I think we've always had a problem thinking about how we discipline our work on that. You know, we have all these models of technological innovation, so why not intellectual innovation? We're thinking about that a lot, and I agree with you that it's very plausible to believe that that is important. I'm not sure we really have a way of thinking about it, but I agree. It seems that's got to come, you know, in this literature. Yeah. 
I have one more question about economics before we move on to politics, the stuff that I care most about. But there's been an interesting debate in the last month or so between sort of economists and public intellectuals in the United States about the role of slavery in American prosperity, in which partially some of the authors for the New York Times' 1619 project and a few other people basically are trying to say that slavery was such a huge part of U.S. economy in the 19th century, so much of America's wealth was created by slaves, that it really helps to explain both the shape of capitalism in the United States today and why it is that North America is so much more affluent than some other societies in the world. And I was wondering, uh, again, preparing for our conversation, whether you might have a slightly different perspective on this, in which obviously a lot of the wealth that we do have in the United States comes from slavery. Obviously, there was people who uh, uh, benefited tremendously from the exploitative system of slavery. But on the whole, it struck me, you might think that as an extremely economically extractive institution, slavery may have actually held the United States back economically rather than helping it to develop. How do you see the role of it? Yeah, I don't think the evidence is consistent with the idea that slavery was good for economic development in the United States. I mean, if you look at the US South, the US South was a lot poorer. It had very little manufacturing industry. It was less urbanized. There was much less public good provision, fewer canals, fewer roads. So the South was much less developed. You know, where the slave economy was, it was less innovative. You know, if you look at patenting data, the South was much less innovative than the North or the West. So I think the evidence is consistent with the idea that the slave economy actually held back the US, not advanced it, but it had the benefit of actually being kind of embedded in this bigger society with relatively functional institutions. So it wasn't the case, you know, as in other parts of the world, in the Caribbean or Brazil, where the slave economy had a much more profound effect on institutions. Of course, you know, slavery had to be recognized in the constitution. So I don't think the evidence is consistent at all with the notion that slave economy was an important positive in American capitalism. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I find interesting about this, and it seems to me that you get that in, in a lot of economic debates, is sort of a way in which political priors drive what appears to be the most virtuous position politically or morally. And it doesn't strike me to be the most virtuous position at all. So, you know, I think it's important to emphasize just how terrible and horrendous slavery was as an institution and just how much America should be ashamed of it and should recognize the injustice it perpetrated. But I think it's sort of strange that in the current debate, there seems to be an assumption that if slavery actually is a lot of a reason for America's prosperity, that somehow uh, emphasizes just how bad it was. Whereas it seems to me that I tend to think of it the other way around, which is to say that there's lots of shitty economic trade-offs that we need to make in the world all of the time. There's all kinds of circumstances in which something we might like and something that is good for the economy don't go in the same direction. Thank God slavery is not one of those things. Thank God we can say, you know what, slavery was not only morally atrocious, it was also economically inefficient. And while there are obviously some people who profited from it, our moral judgment of a society that allowed a few big plantation owners to profit while everybody else suffered, the slaves suffered obviously in an incomparable way, but also the economy as a whole was held back. It seems to me that you know I'd much rather live in the world in which that set of things is true than the reverse. I think that's exactly right. I mean, slavery... What the data suggests is, you know, slavery was very profitable for plantation owners. You know, exploiting other people turns out to always be profitable for some people, but it had huge negative consequences for the economy more broadly. I think that's what the evidence suggests. So moving from the economy, and we're starting to talk about politics in a way, to the new book, to the narrow corridor, one of the fascinating ideas that motivate this book is something that runs a little bit counter to how we tend to have public debates about politics and the economy and liberty, I think, which is to say that we often think of freedom as the absence of constraints in institutions. So I am free politically if nobody is threatening to put me in jail for what I say. I am free economically if a state doesn't step in and pass regulations about you know, what I'm allowed to do or not to do. Whereas the basic framework of this book seems to me to be importantly different. It is saying that no, actually, 
you need a strong state in order to have real economic and political liberty. Why this shift in perspective? We're interested in economics, but we've always been trying to explain variation in institutions because we think that's so critical. But I guess here we're also, you know, interested in trying to broaden the discussion of, you know, what is it that makes for a good society? You know, in a world where the Chinese are putting up face recognition cameras, you know, millions of face recognition cameras on every street corner, and, you know, Big Brother may really be watching you, uh, it seems that some notion of liberty is very critical for thinking about human welfare. You know, what is it that people are complaining about in Hong Kong? You know, why is it that people are fleeing Syria? You know, it's not really about living standards. It's about some basic notion of liberty and and the consequences for welfare that that has. And yeah, if you think about Syria, there's a very Hobbesian set of issues there, you know, just basic order and security. And I think Daron and I, we started thinking about how do we explain that, you know, how do we explain that variation? And I think, as you see in the first chapter of the book, we start with a pretty Hobbesian sort of discussion, which is, you know, in this world, this very anarchic world, you didn't need a state. You know, you can't have liberty without a state mediating disputes and providing basic public goods. But that's obviously not enough either. So here, you know, we try to tap into this all very kind of old philosophical debate started by Hobbes about what is it that can promote order in societies. I, I don't know. So is that controversial? I thought <laughs> you tell me you're the, philo- you're the, you're the philosopher. <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, in important ways, people like Samuel Huntington started to argue for this in his seminal work, you know, in the 1960s. So within political science and economics, I don't think it's that controversial, but I do think it's still different from how we tend to think about it in politics. It's certainly a very non-libertarian point of view. That's probably because I do research in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo or Haiti, where the state is very small. I have a project in Nigeria. Government expenditure is 5% of GDP in Nigeria. You know, it's one of the smallest governments in the world. But that doesn't create freedom. It creates a terrible situation. It's because we've worked in places with very small, ineffective states, and you just see the consequences of that, maybe a part of us has become pretty Hobbesian. So to those libertarians who may be listening, I don't think that's my core audience, but I have some good libertarian <laughs> friends. Um, so what is the result of the absence of a state? I mean, why is it that you need a constrained Leviathan, a strong state, but one that isn't total in order to have liberty? I mean, isn't liberty just mean that people leave me alone? And why won't people leave me alone in some of those countries where the state is so weak? I mean, I think there's two arguments in the book. You know, one is a sort of very traditional argument, you could say, which is the argument Hobbes was thinking about, which is the argument that Steven Pinker has recently made popular, which is that stateless societies, you know, there is a lot of Hobbesian war and disorder. And it's very hard. Locke, of course, you know, talked about, well, actually, it's a little bit more orderly than Hobbes said, but there's some inconveniences, you know, of the uh, state of nature. And my experience in the world and just reading history and ethnography is there's a lot of inconveniences of the state of nature. It's very difficult to create a stateless society which has high levels of liberty. And that's both because of this threat of violence, but it's also because What you see is that the response to the absence of the state is often what we call in the book the cage of norms, that society creates norms, it structures itself in order to reduce the possibility of violence and conflict. And those restrictions, that cage of norms also puts enormous constraints on liberty in our view. So I think that's maybe the more original part of the book, you know, and it's a sense in which Hobbes was not right. Societies aren't necessarily violent, but they're not necessarily characterized by much liberty either because of what they create to stop the violence or kind of head the violence off. Ha, that's fascinating. So you can have a Hobbesian uh, justification of this and a sort of anti-Hobbesian justification of this, but it ends up with a similar view. That makes sense to me. So what explains different historical trajectories that different states have? Why is it that you end up with some countries in which the problem is a lack of 
state capacity, a lack of public order with all of the horrible consequences that that has for human liberty. On the other hand, you have countries in which the state is uh, so dominant that people are crushed under the weight of a Leviathan. And then you have this small range of countries in the middle that somehow manage to keep this balance. So what explains these historical trajectories? You said it exactly right. The way we think about it in the book and the little, the sort of the theory we develop is to say what's crucial is the balance of power between state and society. You need a state to provide order and public goods, but the state has to be shackled. That's the word we use. It has to be under the control of society. You know, so that's very much in the spirit, say, of Locke's second treatise and government. You know, he comes along and says, look, Hobbes didn't get this right because you've got to worry about the governance of the state in some sense. But Locke didn't provide a positive theory of under what circumstances do you get a state which is governed in a way which promotes liberty. And so what we try to do in some sense is you could think we provide a positive theory of that. And it's these elements of the balance between state and society. So the state can dominate society. That would be the Chinese case. Society can dominate the state, Lebanon, large parts of Pakistan, the Philippines, historically sub-Saharan Africa, or a balance can emerge. And where does the balance emerge? In this corridor, this narrow corridor where the title of the book comes from. And I think whether or not you get into those different parts, this kind of tripartite distinction, you know, where do you end up? That is to do with historical contingency. We tell a story in the book about how do you think about these Western European or Northern European dynamics? You know, how come they got into the corridor? That's largely a kind of historical contingency at the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, where the Frankish tribes, especially the Carolingian, the Merovingians, Clovis, fused these very participatory traditions and political institutions of the Germanic tribes with elements of Western Roman state institutions, administrative institutions, legal institutions, the church. So you get this kind of blend of state and participation, which turns out to be very hard to achieve. I love to think about the Frankish tribes and the Carolingian tribes. It, it reminds me of reading Asterix. But talk us through this story a little bit more slowly. So why is it that a lot of these Western European states end up with that combination early on? How is it that the tradition of these tribes is fused with Roman law in order to set up these conditions? Well, I don't think we know enough exactly about why Clovis did that. You know, he was a sort of political entrepreneur, you could say. So perhaps that's where ideas come in and, and contingency. I think it is. I think actually we understand the ideas better in the Chinese case than we do in the European case, in the sense that Clovis himself didn't write about this, or if he did, it hasn't survived. We have, you know, other kind of secondhand accounts by Gregory of Tours, for example, of, you know, what was going on in this period of the Franks. But, you know, there are some incredible facts which are consistent with this idea, you know, which is if you look at, for example, the spread of parliamentary or the incidence of parliamentary institutions in Europe, it coincides almost perfectly with the spread of these Germanic tribes. You know, like, why is the north of Italy different from the south of Italy? You know, where did all these communes come from? You know, the Lombards, the Carolingians, you know, the north of Spain, the south of Spain. Why is it that Navarre or wherever have these Corteses and Andalusia doesn't? It's the Germanic tribes. So there's a remarkable correlation in Western Europe between the origin of these representative institutions and the spread of these Germanic tribes at the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. And we do have these windows of this engineering. I mean, one thing that's very interesting that we talk about in the book also is that, you know, if you contrast legal institutions or early legal codes in Western Europe, like the Salic law, which Clovis promulgated, they dramatically differ from Chinese legal codes, like the Qin or Han legal codes. The Salic law is a sort of bottom-up codification of social norms. You know, it was actually written not by Clovis, mm. but by assemblies, you know, where, where people were chosen to kind of pull these norms together and write them down. How did they write them down? The Franks weren't literate. Well, they, with the help of Roman lawyers. Hmm. So it's a sort of bottom-up codification of social norms. If you look at the Chinese legal codes, it's a kind of top-down engineering project to micromanage society. 
So that to us is incredibly significant in terms of just the gelling of this particular type of society in Western Europe. And that's, you know, that's a tradition that goes right the way through to the common law. And we don't know enough about how Clovis himself was thinking about it. So this is a sort of interpretation of what went on. As I say, we actually know more about what was going on in China. And I think, you know, what we point out in the book actually is if you go back earlier than this in China, because you could say in China, the pivotal moment is significantly earlier, which is the first dynasty, the Qin dynasty emerges. Before that, there's lots of evidence of participation and assemblies. And, you know, there's a famous kind of aphorism in the Hunzi, which is a third century BC kind of philosophical tract, which is the king is a boat. The people are the water. The water can hold up the boat or it can sink the boat. You know, the, the people wow. can sink yeah. the king. So that's a statement about participation. You know, but what you see with the Qin Empire is a sort of intellectual project going back to your suggestion about ideas. You know, it's somehow this legalist philosophers come with an intellectual project of how to organize society. This is how to organize society. And that's what they tried to implement. And that to us sets off a dramatic divergence, you know, in China. And that's where you are today. We're starting to get a picture of how it is that some countries manage to stay within this narrow corridor. But perhaps in a way, it's easier to explain why some countries end up outside the corridor. And again, the idea is that there's people on both sides of a corridor. So why is it that China goes from having these early participatory traditions, from having this idea about the king having to be held up by the water and the water decides to let it sink, then poof, it goes, to a much more centralized tradition and an autocratic tradition that was then in place for essentially a couple of millennia? Well, the, you know, the story we have in the book is small differences in initial conditions, you could say, that yes, there is these traditions of accountability and assemblies and participation and the water and the boat in China, but it's slightly skewed towards the power of the state compared to where you were in Europe. And, you know, maybe that's because in Europe you have the Roman Republic, you know, you have Athens and Solon and or Cleisthenes. There are notions, perhaps deep, more deeply embedded notions of this balance in Europe that come into play. You know, what's interesting about Clovis and the Salic law is that at that moment, there's actually very little evidence of, you know, the Salic law has nothing to do with Roman law, for example. It's only later that the Theodosian codes and Roman law starts getting kind of incorporated into that. But you could say it was in the air. You know, he was interacting with these Romans, clearly, who must have been familiar with all these ideas. So it could be that there are idiosyncratic factors like that that influence this initial balance. So again, our idea is it's not that the Chinese ate rice and the Europeans ate wheat, or there's just some big kind of fundamental difference between Chinese culture or geography, or it's just small differences in this balance of power lead to very different long-run dynamics. They kind of accumulate. What about the other end of a corridor? So that helps to explain why it is that in some countries the state ends up having all of the power and society ends up having very little power. Why is it that in other parts of the world, the state just never gets off the ground in the kind of way we need in order to create the conditions for economic growth and human liberty? Well, the argument in the book comes straight from the Chinese case. You know, So in some sense, the creation of this very centralized, despotic state in China our view would be that's very threatening to people's liberty. You know, in fact, the Qin dynasty didn't last very long because there was a mass uprising against the micromanagement. So our view is if, you know, if you take Africa, we, there's a lot of fabulously illustrated ethnographic examples of this. Is It's the kind of antagonism to hierarchy and the concern that hierarchy will be used to kind of despotically that makes people very ang anxious about it and leads them to try to stop it. You know, I mean, again, go back to Locke. You know, what does Locke say? I'm sure you know the exact expression, but I'm, I'm going to paraphrase Locke, you know, that people, should people be so worried about polecats and foxes that they risk being devoured by lions? So mm -hmm. my experience in Africa and my reading of the ethnographic literature, which is extremely extensive on this, is that Africans are very worried about being concerned by lions. You know, why is it that African societies are so small scale? You know, I've been working up in the Joss Plateau in central Nigeria. It's about the size of metropolitan Chicago, there's 68 different ethnic groups on the Joss Plateau, these incredibly wow. small scale societies. Why did they never 
accumulate into something bigger, you know, something larger. I don't think it's because Africans don't get that there are advantages of this. They just don't know how to control it. So that's the basic argument in the book, that what leads you to the other side of this corridor is this inability to create hierarchy and control it. But that doesn't create, that doesn't create liberty either, as we were discussing earlier. So what is the difference in initial conditions there? If it's sort of that you can't quite create the structured rule that allows the state to flourish, why is it that the Carolingian tribes did that, but the tribes in the Nigerian plateau you just described did not? Yeah, it's a great question. There's two ways of thinking about that. One way is just, again, very idiosyncratic. There was nothing like bureaucratized Roman state institutions in any time ever in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, maybe in the 19th century, you could say the Asante state or the Buganda state. But, you know, if you think about the late Roman Empire, there was a very elaborate bureaucracy system of administration, taxes. Why did that emerge as it did in the Mediterranean basin? Again, you know, that comes out of a long tradition, the Fertile Crescent, Egypt, Greece. Okay, so maybe that's just a completely idiosyncratic feature of world history, and that's what allows this thing to emerge. It could also be that there is something about Africa, that there's just something about Africa that makes it really difficult to kind of solve this problem, to create hierarchy and get it under control. You know, we discuss that a little bit in the book. Well, here's an example we talk about in the book. You know, if you look at the history of ancient Greece, you see the Greeks were great at taking sort of social norms and converting them into constraints on authority. You know, think about ostracism. Think about Solon's hubris law. It was sort of taking social norms and using them as mechanisms for controlling elites so that you could build kind of centralization and hierarchy, but you had tools for controlling it. But then we contrast that in Africa. You see very frequently witchcraft accusations are used as a way of controlling people. You know, if you get too big for your boots, I accuse you of being a witch. But it's very hard to use witchcraft in the way the Athenians used ostracism, you know, not just the Athenians, but it's very hard to use that. Why is that? Well, because witchcraft is just kind of connected with all sorts of other things too. For example, in many African societies, as soon as somebody got ill or died, the null hypothesis was that they'd been killed by witchcraft. I mean, that's still true today, you know, in many parts of Africa. So it was very difficult to sort of disentangle this one use of witchcraft for controlling elites from the other ways in witchcraft was understood in society. So they couldn't do with witchcraft what the Greeks did with ostracism. Now, again, why is that? Why couldn't they do that? I don't know the answer to that. You know, in any theory, there's going to be some things that are exogenous. So I think there's two explanations. It could be there's this idiosyncratic story about Roman institutions, but it could be that there's something different about Africa. And I'm not hmm. sure that I really understand that, but there you are. All right, that's really helpful. One feeling that I think readers of Why Nations Fail got and that readers of The Narrow Corridor will get as well is a slight hopelessness. Now, I'm you know, known to be a pessimistic author, so we're part of the same club on that. But I guess the thing that I'm wondering about or what I'm worried about is that if the reason why some societies are very prosperous and others poor, the reason why some societies are able to afford citizens a lot of freedoms and others either are tyrannical or lack the state institutions to make sure that people are protected from their neighbors, is in the woods of the Gallic territories in the early Middle Ages, or if they are in what happened in a dynasty 2,500 years ago in China, does that leave us with any scope for political action today? What does that mean for people who live in societies that are not prosperous or who live in societies that don't have much freedom? Should they basically just kick back and say, there's nothing we can do and you know, let's hope to migrate to places where things are better. What hope is there that us understanding these long-range historical institutional sources of a present condition might actually empower us to overcome some of these challenges? No, I mean, I think there's plenty of hope. I got interested in social science because I lived in a lot of developing countries when I was a kid, and I just was very curious as to why the world looks so different, you know, depending on where you were in it. I think that's fine, and I think that's interesting. But the important takeaway is this balance of power, it seems to me. you know. And 
history never repeats itself. You know, modern societies don't have to go through the same process that Western Europe went through. I think the lesson that hopefully one can take out of this is this balance of power. You know, so we talk about, you know, lots of more recent sort of transitions at the end of the book where we try to interpret successful transitions through the lens of the theory, you know, in different parts of the world, in Lagos State, in Nigeria, or in Bogota, in Colombia, as successful transitions. Why? Because they combine this element of building state and society together. I mean, I would say what I like about this book relative to Why Nations Fail is that this kind of captures, we think, more this sort of process. You know, this is a process. You can't create liberty in a society which generates liberty overnight. I think that's the fact of the matter. You know, you it, it's a process. It takes a long time. You know, so I do believe that, but I don't believe that any society today has to reproduce these historic initial conditions of Western Europe. They're going to have their own conditions and constraints. So I think that's the lesson we want to get across. But you are describing is in certain ways a vicious cycle, right? Where if you lack the initial conditions, you can have a momentary breakthrough that starts to approximate them, but it will very quickly run out of steam. So you might have somebody come into a very economically extractive country who is determined to make them more economically inclusive, but very quickly the incentives, the institutions will make it so that they either place themselves atop those extractive institutions or are likely swept aside. You mentioned to me as we were chatting before starting to record that you were just in Zimbabwe at the time of Robert Mugabe's death, who I think is a great example of that process at work. So it's not that Zimbabwe has to go through the same economic development that England did in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, we're obviously in a different moment. How is it that well-intentioned political leaders, well-intentioned civil society actors can try to break through this series of vicious cycles, which is present both on the economic and on the political fronts. Yeah, I don't think any of these problems are easy to solve. I would say, I think one of the fruits of our theory is that it sort of clarifies in a nice, simple way, the type of problem you have to solve you know, it's very different depending on where you are relative to this corridor. So if you're in a situation like Zimbabwe, which I'd say is a pretty despotic situation where, you know, you have the rule of ZANU-PF for almost 40 years now, there the problem is society has to get stronger. You know, there has to be, you have to deepen participation, but the country's being run in the benefit of a very small number of military and civilian elites, and they don't want to give up their power. And so that's a very conflictual situation. I mean, you know, a lot of our, Daron and our, our early work, our early theoretical work was on models of democratization and trying to understand the process of democratization and, you know, the kind of opening of the political space historically in different parts of the world. And I think that is a conflict prone process. It's the 200 year anniversary of the Peterloo riots at the moment uh, in England, you mm. know, which were these massive riots demanding suffrage extension and demanding voting rights. And to me, that's the big picture, you know. So sometimes you can engineer a compromise whereby you can buy out the elites and open the political space without threatening their interest and their rents. But that turns out to be difficult to do, I would say. But in a different type of society, you know, a society where the state is very weak and, you know, the Central African Republic or Lebanon or Nigeria, then, then that's a very difficult, diff different problem you have to solve. It's not so much that there are elites with huge vested interests. It's just you have to solve this constitutional problem or this political problem of creating authority and guaranteeing it's accountable to people or it works in the kind of collective interest. So there's very different problems depending on where you are. I wonder what you have to say about a topic that is very central to, to my work, but often tends to be on the side of your work insofar as you engage with it, which is the rise of populism around the world. Now, I'm struck by the fact, as I argue in my work, that a lot of these new politicians in quite different contexts have very similar rhetorical stances. They talk in very similar ways about how they and they alone truly represent the people, and that means that other people are illegitimate. And they also, empirically, so far as we've seen up to this point, start to undermine independent institutions in surprisingly comparable ways. Now, 
if I'm trying to look at the topic of populism through the lens of your work, I guess I would be tempted to say that the impact of them is nevertheless going to be very different. That when you're in a context like Hungary or Turkey, which have always had relatively extractive institutions, which have long had a state that predominates over civil society in many ways, this is a kind of reversion to the mean which is likely to sustain itself. Whereas perhaps in a country like the United States, which does have inclusive institutions, which does have a very robust civil society, attempts at creating this form of top-down control are likely to be hampered by the kind of virtuous cycle that places that are already within the narrow corridor, that already have economically inclusive institutions can benefit from. Is that a right guesstimate of where you shake out? Or how, how do you think your work can help to explain what's going on with populism and what, what the likely trajectory of these populist leaders and the countries ruled by them might be? Those are very important set of issues. I think, you know, we try to talk about this a little bit in the chapter. <laughs> the book's too long, you know, so this chapter is way into the book. It's called Red Queen Out of Control. So one mechanism we emphasize a lot is how when you're in the corridor, there's this sort of competition between state and society. And in this competition, both the state and the society changes. You know, you could say the state tries to control society and society pushes back and tries to control the state. And we call this the red queen effect from Alice through the looking glass, this kind of competition where you stay balanced, you stay in the corridor. But I think you can also spin out of the corridor. We try to tell the story of, yeah, this is a deeply rooted historical process. But also, you know, if you start thinking about Germany, <laughs> to take a random example, you could see there's many instances in history where the Germans jumped out of the corridor. You know, what was the absolutist state-building project after the Thirty Years' War? What was Bismarckian unification or what was the Nazi state? You know, in some sense, it was a jump out of the corridor. But take the Nazi example, it wasn't a jump out of the corridor precipitated by elites capturing institutions, you know, like in Zimbabwe. It was actually a popular upsurge of discontent about society that Hitler was able to tap into and the Nazis were able to tap into. So, you know, that's a rather extreme example, but in some sense, populism is a kind of bottom-up disillusionment with these type of institutions that risks throwing you out of the corridor. So that's, I think, how we would think of populism in our context. You know, so why is it that people get so disillusioned with the institutions? You know, why is it that some people kind of buy into this interpretation of the world that you know you just outlined and kind of think of some leader as being able to solve their problems. I, I'm not sure I have a good idea of, about that. I think you can point to structural features, you know, rising inequality or kind of social distance between elites and people in the United States, the kind of the flyover country psychology that many people in the East and West Coast in the United States have. But I'm just saying, how would you think about populism in our theory? I think that's how we say you should think about it. But I personally find there's many things about populism that I think I don't understand. You know, I don't really understand why people think that President Trump is going to solve their problems. I mean, it is a massive disillusionment with institutions. But I would say, you know, going back to the way you introduced this, is that, again, if you think historically like I do, you start thinking, well, the United States has had really bad presidents before. Roosevelt violated term limits in the most sneaky way. He proposed packing the Supreme Court. You know, in many ways, those are two far more radical things than anything President Trump has proposed yet. Ulysses Grant was a terrible president. So the US has had bad presidents who wanted to accumulate personal power, who wanted to undermine the institution's before. And I'm sure you know the Federalist Papers better than I do, you know, but Madison's whole point is that, you know, you can't design institutions relying on well-meaning people. You have to design them anticipating not well-meaning or even incompetent people. That's the whole point. And I think with Hungary, you know, I think what we've learned from this EU process is that these deep histories of institutions and the organization of societies are important. You know, you can't make Greece into Denmark overnight or not even in 10 or 20 years. And the European Union, in many ways, created dysfunctional dynamics. 
which have made that harder to do. I don't know Hungary at all. But I would say probably these deeper-seated, lower-frequency institutional issues, they haven't been solved by the European integration or the collapse of socialism. And there is an element of mean reversion, exactly as you say. So I suppose that this is a mixed news on the populism front, which is to say that perhaps societies like the United States are in real danger of jumping out of a narrow corridor. But if they avoid that, then the deep history of having those liberties and having those economically inclusive institutions is likely to empower civil society to defend itself against autocratic leaders. Uh, but in countries in which uh, historically it hasn't been the case, and some of these institutional problems have not been as thoroughly solved as we might have imagined 10 years ago, we're much more likely to see the continuation of a kind of process of deterioration. I and mean, I think we're, we're not quite seeing that yet. It's a little bit too early to go by empirical evidence over the last few years, but that's a very plausible theory as to what's around the corner. Are there any lessons, and I know that your book is not about lessons, but are there any lessons that the citizens of those lucky countries within the narrow corridor should take from this work for how they can defend their countries, how they can ensure that those countries stay within the narrow corridor rather than jump outside of it, even if it's, as was the case in Germany, for a relatively brief period of 12 years, which can, as that example amply illustrates, be disastrous for the world. Yes, absolutely. So this is not a call for complacency. You know, the Nazi state, it was a brief period, and when it collapsed... You know, what I find remarkable is the extent to which there's some common understanding in Germany about how to do things and how to organize things. And, you know, so that's very much what the book is about, these kind of low frequency ways in which society conceives of solving these problems. But of course, you know, if that spins out of control in the way that the Nazi state did, it, it creates enormous misery and chaos. So it's not a call for complacency. It's to say we're all part of society and you know, we have to do our bit in defending liberty and inclusive institutions. And that means complaining. It means protesting. It means contesting the state overreaching and complaining about inequality and complaining about state capture and worrying about it. So absolutely, I think that's very important. James, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.